from 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR, this is Lake Effect. I'm Joy Powers. Today, Capital Notes explores some of the controversies surrounding Wisconsin's top election official. Then we'll learn about flock safety cameras and how police are using them to surveil communities and catch criminals. Crime has no boundaries. There's no geographical boundaries for criminals. They go wherever they feel that there's an opportunity that they can take advantage of people. We'll learn about Milwaukee County's Birth to Three program, which helps parents and caretakers when extra support is needed. It's best when, you know, we can interact with them positively to impact the child and their development. And so research also suggests that the brain's development is the most adaptable in the first three years of life. And so early intervention services can change a child's developmental path. All of that is coming up on Lake Effect. But first, here are today's headlines. This is Lake Effect from 89.7 WUWN. Milwaukee's NPR. I'm Joy Powers and thank you so much for joining us. Later in the show, we'll look at the bounty of the growing season in this month's Dig In. But we'll start with Capital Notes. From Milwaukee's NPR, this is Capital Notes. We break down the big political news affecting Wisconsin. I'm Mayan Silver, today speaking with J.R. Ross, editor of WISPolitics.com. He provides a roundup of the Wisconsin developments you need to know. Here's our latest conversation. Hi, J.R., nice to chat with you again. Oh, thanks for having me. So a slice of Republicans in the state are unhappy with Wisconsin's nonpartisan head of elections, and there have been some developments in that saga lately. Before getting into the latest developments, can you give us a short synopsis of what Megan Wolf does and what some in the GOP have against her? Well, she is the administrator of the Elections Commission, so basically she's our, our top elections official. And her job is to run the agency and to carry out the directives of the six-member Wisconsin Elections Commission. Remember, that is a six-member body made up equally of Democrats and Republicans. And the biggest beef a lot of Republicans have is just how the 2020 election was run. The challenge there is that for Wolf is a lot of what they're unhappy about are things that she did at the direction of the commission. For example, she wasn't the one who decided not to send special voting deputies into nursing homes to help those residents vote. That was a vote of the commission. She is not the one who told clerks they should look to fill in missing uh, address information from witnesses of for those voting absentee. That was a directive of the commission, but she was the one who carried it out. Now, there are some things that you know she did on her own, like she recommended some best practices, for example, when it came to using uh, private money to help run elections or cover election costs. But for the most part, the things that Republicans are most unhappy about are things that the commission voted on and she did at their behest. That said, she's become the focus, a lot of you know the attention, uh, a lot of the kind of outrage from people who believe the 2020 election was stolen from Donald Trump. And there's now this kind of like, push in some GOP circles to get rid of her, even though if you talk to Republicans, they'll acknowledge that, yeah, you know, a lot of what she did was not, you know, her own doing. A lot of their clerks, local clerks, say she does a good job, but there's just this kind of push among some very passionate Republicans to get rid of her. Okay, so the latest developments are that the Senate had set up a confirmation hearing for tomorrow on a new four-year term for Wolf, and that's after the Elections Commission, which is three Republicans and three Democrats, voted 3-0 to re-nominate her with the three Democrats abstaining. Um, they didn't want to send the nomination to the state Senate, and so the recent development is that Attorney General Josh Call has issued an opinion that the Senate 
shouldn't bother holding that hearing to approve or reject Wolf, that she should be able to remain in the position indefinitely. Can you explain all this? Sure. So state law says that you have to have a majority of the commission to nominate somebody to be the administrator. During the vote uh, in June, the Democrats said, look, that means you have to have four votes out of the six members, no matter who's voting and who's not, to nominate somebody. We're abstaining. That leaves you short of four votes. Ergo, there's no reappointment. Megan Wolf remains in this position indefinitely. And they cited a state Supreme Court ruling from last summer with Fred Prane, who was the Wausau dentist who refused to step down from his term as a member of the Natural Resources Board. It went to the state Supreme Court, which laid down a definition of a vacancy. So the Democrats said, hey, she's there. Devin Lemahue, the Senate Majority Leader, uh, pushed this motion on the floor of the Senate the last night before they uh, broke for a while, back in June, that declared the 3-0 vote was enough, that basically that they were now taking this nomination and it was before the Senate. He said he got legal advice that three votes was enough because it was majority of those voting, not majority of the commissioners, he, said, he argued, that were required. Well, Call, in this letter last week, said, no, you, you've got it wrong. Uh, the Democrats and the commission had it right. It requires a majority of the commissioners, not those voting, but the commissioners, i.e. four votes, to nominate somebody. And he pointed to a separate piece of state law that says, if the commission wants to remove an administrator, it's majority of those voting. He said, look, lawmakers right there in statute spelled out two different standards. So ergo, it's clear they meant for majority of the entire commission, not just those voting, to nominate some, to put somebody forward for this position. Ergo, you guys should drop this. You guys don't have power over it. And look, I don't know what's right or wrong in this situation, but what I can tell you is if the Senate Republicans go forward with this process and try to remove Megan Wolf is going to end up in court. And the question is, how is a court going to rule? We had the Supreme Court issue that decision, the Prane case last summer, but that was a 4-3 conservative majority. Now we have a 4-3 liberal majority. Will they rule differently with this or have a different standard? And really kind of a fascinating in the weeds thing is Josh Call last summer was arguing that, no, Fred Prane shouldn't be allowed to serve in this, in this position anymore. He should be pushed out. Would he now argue the opposite with Megan Wolf? if it came to a court case, uh, after losing that case, it'd really be fascinating to watch. Well, I guess one difference is that there's actually some precedent now with the court actually ruling against Call. So, I mean, that, that wouldn't be that unusual for him to flip his position, I guess. Yeah, uh, possibly. You know, the court hello, had ruled 50 years ago that you can continue serving in a position until your um, replacement is confirmed. So it's just going to be interesting to watch if, if Call adopts that line of thinking. And by the way, the three liberals who were on the court last summer all voted the opposite. They didn't believe that Fred Prane should continue serving. So how would they take a, you know, view this issue now um, if there was a lawsuit? Would they continue to follow that precedent or say, no, 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 we were right back last summer and we argued that there's a vacancy and therefore she has to go? So what's the way to avoid a lawsuit? <laughs> Good question. Uh, what I'm watching with the Senate now is they have the public hearing tomorrow. Um, will the Senate have a... Executive session, we call it, where they they vote on Megan Wolf, and will that be enough, you know, to kind of signal their opposition, or will there be a floor vote? Um, because I think the leadership knows if there's a floor vote and Wolf is removed, at least according to that vote, there's going to be a lawsuit. And then what happens? Because remember, we've got an election, a fairly important one, coming up in all of about oh, you know, 13, 14 months. It is not a great look for Wisconsin 
to have a vacancy or a dispute over who the top election official is, we could be the eye of the storm once again um, nationally. So it, it's a really kind of a, a, t- a tough situation right now for everybody involved. You're tuned into Capital Notes on WUWM. This is Mayan Silver speaking with J.R. Ross, editor of WizPolitics.com. So in another example of kind of like a nonpartisan position turned partisan, GOP legislators have filed a motion to force liberal-backed Justice Janet Protosiewicz off a pair of redistricting lawsuits. They want her to totally recuse herself based on donations she received from the state Democratic Party and past comments that the current lines are rigged for Republicans. What should we know about this? Well, typically what happens with recusal motions is the court refers that motion to the justice targeted and says, okay, here, make up your mind, because the standard has been for a long time with the court that it is up to any judge or justice to decide if he or she can hear a case. End of story. They don't usually vote to try to remove somebody. which set a Tuesday uh, deadline for anybody who wants to kind of weigh in on this request to you know, be heard. She'll take those uh, opinions into consideration and then uh, make a decision. But what I'm kind of looking down the road is what happens here if she stays in the case and there is a new map put in place by the Supreme Court. If you read that recusal motion, there's a lot of talk about a 2009 U.S. Supreme Court decision. It's called Caperton. There's a West Virginia uh, justice who, during his campaign, a wealthy uh, contributor gave $3 million over all the effort to help this guy get elected. I mean, a small donation to his campaign directly, a big donation to like $2.5 million to a PAC helping him and the rest in independent expenditures. And the Supreme Court back then said, look, that, that was not appropriate. That judge should not have sat on that case. That's an extreme example. Um, and they vacated the decision. But now fast forward, so you look at the recusal motion, it cites that case extensively about like, look, you know, there was 3 million bucks in that case. We're talking $10 million that the state Democratic Party gave to per se, which either through direct contributions or in-kind donations, you know, this crosses a line. Um, if you look at that 2009 ruling, though, from the Supreme Court, the only three justices left on the court who were in the, in that case were all conservatives, and they all voted in the minority against the standard. So how would they view a appeal on a ruling they didn't agree with from 14 years ago? Fascinating question. But what might be more important for Republicans is, can they just slow things down? And what I say that is, if you go back and look at the 2021 to 22 kind of saga with the registered lawsuit, the Elections Commission said, look, we need maps by mid-March, early April, to be able to administer the election appropriately. Um, if Republicans can at least slow this whole process down, push it past March, April, May into June, maybe it gets to the point where there's not enough time for new lines for the 2024 elections. Then that could give you the opportunity to try to win back control of the court in 2025 with Ann Walsh Bradley, liberal, up for election that year. Uh, maybe get you the 2026 cycle. I mean, there's all kinds of what ifs in this scenario. But in the end, it might be about slowing things down, just trying to avoid new maps being in place for 2024. I mean, we assume this liberal majority is going to overturn the laps. I mean, maybe it's the wrong thing to think, but everybody I talk to thinks this court, if it gets a redistricting suit before it and takes up the issues, will vote to overturn the current maps and put new ones in place. 
So what difference does it make that the state Democratic Party has donated that $10 million to Protosewitz's campaign in the past, but isn't a party to the redistricting suits? Does that make a difference in the recusal motion? The Republicans argue no, because they say there's, you, you can draw an easy line from the interests of the Democratic Party to the candidates who would benefit if there were new lines in place to the Democratic voters who are the plaintiffs in the lawsuit. They're arguing there's no difference, and it would be silly, in their words, essentially, to suggest the party had no interest in this case. There's also a very interesting uh, argument in there that Protosewicz has a personal interest in ruling against the maps because she campaigned, talking about how they were rigged, and the argument goes from Republicans that she made a, a campaign pledge, essentially, to uh, voters, and if she doesn't uh, overturn those maps, she would pay a price politically when she sought re-election. So she has to kind of meet this campaign promise. It's, it's a unique argument, but again, uh, it's just putting everything you think of in there to say there's a problem with her here in this case. Also, I've heard some Democrats argue that all we're seeing is an effort by conservatives to diminish the court, to say, look, whatever comes out of this court, you can't trust it. It's basically rigged against us. Uh, this process is, you know, not fair and trying to diminish and undercut the court because it's got a new liberal majority versus the old conservative one. I see. So we're looking real long-term, big picture with, with these developments. So finally, Milwaukee hosted a big GOP debate last week. It was the first one of the 2024 presidential primary cycle. Eight candidates and no Trump. I spoke with GOP voters at a watch party in Milwaukee, and a lot of them were open to non-Trump candidates and said that the economy was their big issue. What are you hearing from Republicans in the state about that debate, how it went, and what their opinions were, and whether it changed anything? Just that, you know, there wasn't really a moment that people go, ah, that's going to live on for, in, you know, in, in history as like the big moment that changed the trajectory of this race, in part because Trump wasn't there. So while there were comments about Trump, they had, don't have a chance to really go after him directly or to try to pull him down to their level. And so people really kind of question, is there an opportunity at this point to change this race, to have it not just be, you know, Trump being the presumptive nominee, but really try to challenge him. And, you know, you're seeing a couple numbers pop up here and there of Nikki Haley doing better, or Ron DeSantis, you know, improving his stock, but we're not seeing Trump's support crater. And it's worth noting that, you know, I got mixed, mixed opinions from people about whether Trump's interview with Tucker Carlson really took a lot away from the debate itself, but him turning himself in the next day to the authorities in Georgia, it changed the whole conversation that wasn't really much about the debate anymore, right? It became all about what's going on with Trump and the mugshot and the, all that, you know, the timing for the trial. It really sucked uh, all the oxygen out there because when you have a debate, you're hoping for that big moment that goes viral, you can put it into a, a paid media campaign, and two, to have a lot of chatter about that performance go on for days afterward to help build you up. Well, Trump kind of nixed that opportunity for that balance by, you know, turning himself in the day after the debate and changing the conversation from that to all about his charges. Well, it's interesting that for most people that would be a negative turn in the conversation, but it <laughs> yeah. didn't really seem to yeah. change much. All right. Well, thanks for the insights, JR, and thanks for joining me on Capital Notes. Anytime. That was WUWM's Mayan Silver speaking with J.R. Ross of WIS Politics. You can hear Capital Notes every other Monday on Lake Effect.
In Wisconsin, there's a growing number of high-tech surveillance cameras being used to solve crimes. Flock Safety is the company behind this tech, which gives law enforcement agencies access to a national database of vehicle details, including license plates. Jeff Caponera is the police chief in the village of Grafton. His department was one of the first to install the cameras in 2021. He says now there are nearly 500 cameras in the state, and communities are using the technology to do more than catch criminals. WUWM's Eddie Morales asks Caponera how the cameras collect evidence and what's being done with the data to ensure privacy of drivers. Can you explain how the cameras work? Basically, the cameras are set around the village in fixed locations. They use what Flock terms as a vehicle fingerprint uh, technology. So basically, it identifies the license plate of the vehicle and can even determine uh, the make of the vehicle um, based on certain characteristics of the taillights and the back end of the vehicle, so to speak. So that's really the crux of how the system works. Uh, when a vehicle passes by there, it obviously captures the license plates. Um, and, and we don't know um, what vehicles are passing by there unless the vehicle is actually entered into the national database on a hot list uh, or in any internal hot list created by us or hot list created by another agency if they're sharing their hot list. So, you know, it's just like, driving down the street and seeing a car pass by, it would be, except the only difference is, as our cameras don't pick up who's driving the vehicles, uh, they just pick up the back side of the vehicle and, and the plate information on that. Then it runs it through a database and, you know, runs the plates through the database. If the, if the vehicle comes back as a stolen vehicle, a wanted person, a missing person or anything like that, then our officers get notified via text message or via their open application of Flock on their uh, mobile computers in their cars. And so this database and this list, does that allow these cameras to uh, be connected on a national scale? Yes, that's correct. So it'd be like if you were wanted for homicide, for example, we would enter your information into the national database, the NCIC system. If you have a vehicle associated uh, with you, that information goes into the database as well as an associated, it would be considered an associated hit for that person that could be driving that vehicle. Uh, if your car is stolen, we enter that into the national database as well, the NCIC system. So anybody, if that vehicle comes through Grafton or if it comes through Atlanta, they'll know about it because it's all part of that national database system. How are Grafton officers using this technology to solve crime? Do you have any specific examples? Yeah, so we're, we're not just using them to solve crimes. We're actually uh, using it to find missing persons as well. I'll give you an example of that first. Um, we had a notification come through on the Wisconsin alert system notifying all agencies of a missing elderly person and our crime analyst was actually working at her desk and entered the plate into Flock uh, and created a hot list for that vehicle. And literally within five minutes, um, we got a notification that that vehicle was in our village. 
based on where we saw that vehicle, we could kind of tell where it was going. So we alerted Port Washington Police Department, and they were actually able to uh, safely reunite that person with their family. So that one good example of how we use it for identifying uh, missing persons and helping solve missing person cases. A couple of the other ones we have, we used in a recent um, child sex abuse case uh, with two suspects that were coming into Grafton um, and we were able to use cameras to pinpoint the times uh, and locations where those persons were traveling through Grafton, uh, which enabled us to be able to link them to the area and then number two, capture them uh, when they came through the village and their plate hit on our on our cameras. So in fact, those folks are getting ready to be sentenced uh, as we speak. Uh, and, that, and that ended up being clearing multiple sexual assault cases against children here in the village. So that was a very, very good example of how we use it there. And another example, Germantown reached out to us because they had a funny retail theft suspects that have been hitting multiple areas or multiple retailers in their area. And one evening they happened to see that that particular vehicle was in Grafton because it hit on one of our cameras here. Uh, and they reached out to us and we were able to locate the suspect vehicle and ultimately ended up in a pursuit with them, which took us down into Milwaukee and we were able to, to capture them for crimes that not only happened in Germantown, but crimes that happened here in Grafton all at the felony level. And then finally, the last one, uh, we haven't prosecuted this case yet. However, this was a case where we had some catalytic converter thefts going on at the high school. We were able to identify, all we had was a, a vehicle description and our crime analyst and our detectives worked to enter the vehicle information into uh, flock and search all the vehicles that had passed by that matched the description of that vehicle. Uh, and we were able to narrow it down and get a plate number on that vehicle uh, and identify the suspects in that case. However, that's still pending case and we haven't done anything further with that as far as prosecution yet goes. But again, it did help us uh, identify the, the suspects in that in those cases that would have, uh, without the technology, would have gone undetected in our village. Thanks for sharing those examples with me. How would you explain then how much of an impact those cameras have had in the area and surrounding areas? So I can tell you uh, in Grafton, uh, we installed those cameras back in May of 2021. Uh, and I did an analysis from our first eight months that we had those, via, uh, those cameras in place. And it dropped our retail theft rate 25% in the first eight months that it was there. Now, I, I'll be honest, I have not done another analysis similar to that, but I can tell you that with the addition of those cameras in our retail areas, now we have cameras that are purchased by the village, but we also have cameras that are purchased by our Grafton Commons area, which is the development that houses all of our major uh, retailers. And we have access to those cameras as well. There's a platform that we use to get information on plates and that kind of stuff. And, and our crime analyst puts in plate information of known retail theft uh, suspects and puts that into a hot list. So we're aware of what, if those vehicles come into our, into our retail areas or even if they come into Grafton, um, we can be on alert for that. Because of that, we've actually averted a couple of retail crimes where we've actually 
just our presence stopped them. Uh, and we were able to um, make uh, some arrests on that before uh, or just after they had happened. So it, it, that was helpful. To say these cameras are having an impact in our area, yeah, they're, they're truly having an impact, especially around our retail area, which is why we got them, to be able to help our retailers and make that area more safe for the patrons that come over to Grafton to shop. So again, going back, we had a 25% reduction in the first eight months of the installation of those cameras uh, in our retail theft. You're listening to Lake Effect on WUWM. I'm Eddie Morales, speaking with Grafton Police Chief Jeff Caponera. Was Grafton one of the first areas in southeastern Wisconsin to install these cameras and use yeah. this technology? And also, uh, did you have any involvement in sharing the success and the technology with other police departments in the area? Yeah, so uh, I brought this technology to uh, Grafton. I was aware of it from my previous organization because uh, we were in the process of installing them and using them in, in my previous organization in Texas. So prior to us installing our first five cameras uh, in Grafton, there were no flock cameras at all in Wisconsin. So what I did is I uh, met with our area chiefs and and I, I can't take the credit. We didn't get the first cameras in the ground. Uh, Jackson actually beat me to it, but they, their ground apparently thawed quicker than mine did. <laughs> and uh, they got their first two cameras. But, you know, it's a running joke with Chief Boscule over there with him and I. But, yeah, so between us two, I, I'll, I'll go ahead and give him a little credit. Yeah, we, we were the first two agencies to get it in, in the area here. And now, from what I understand, there are well over 350, probably closer to 500 cameras statewide uh, in, in Wisconsin. So after I installed my cameras here, I had a uh, flock user group uh, meeting and invited a bunch of chiefs. I think we had close to 50 chiefs in there in the room and I had flock give a presentation but I, I really wanted to reach out to everybody to let them know about this technology because I wanted to share my cameras and the data that we had in our cameras to be able to help them locate uh, suspects in crimes as well. As you know, crime has no boundaries. There's no geographical boundaries for criminals. They go wherever they feel that there's an opportunity that they can take advantage of people. So. We know that we're a short distance from Milwaukee. We're right down the road from Green Bay as well. I mean, an hour down the road. So we're sitting perfectly uh, along that highway to be prime target for criminals. And I'll be honest with you, until we installed those cameras, I had no idea how many stolen cars, how many stolen plates, uh, how many wanted people were coming through our village. And they would have gone undetected had we not had these cameras. Have you heard any feedback from residents about the cameras? Like, have they asked any questions about privacy concerns? And if so, how do you answer those questions? Yeah, so we did a marketing thing when we pushed this out. I had my PIO put together a video, and he did a really nice job because we understand um, at the end of the day, there, there's always the perception of big brothers watching. Well, I'm the last person that wants another piece of technology that can follow me around, right? Uh, and, and I am the police. That's, <laughs> you know, but at the end of the day, I recognize the value of this. And we have gotten really positive feedback from our community because of that, uh, because we're using it properly. 
Um, we're not abusing the system. Uh, there are safeguards put into place in our policies, as well as with flock safety that allows and keeps people honest, okay? So when my PIO put out the, the public video out there, we addressed the concerns, told people exactly what the cameras would do, how they would be used, and also indicated that the cameras are not capable of targeting one specific person or seeing into the vehicle. That's not what they're designed for. We don't even know what vehicles come through here and likely won't even know unless we have a reason to look for it. So that's really the, the crux of the safety. There's really no privacy concerns at all here that I can see and, and none have ever been raised with us. You know, when we're out here doing the right things for the right reasons, uh, you don't get complaints. And we do conduct periodic audits monthly. Uh, I take a look at this on a monthly basis and see who's looking and who's accessing my cameras and for what reason. Um, before my officers can even look for a vehicle, they have to enter the uh, cause or the reason for a search, uh, and they have to include the case number. So I make sure that we, we're following those policies, uh, and, and we do a good job of that. And when another agency searches my cameras, I'm aware of it because it hits on my, my network log. So we can we can track that as well and and that's not just my cameras that's everybody's so anytime we run a we run a, a search up for a vehicle uh nationwide our agency and who it was that was searching pops up on their audit log as well so there is a very robust audit log and the other thing is is we only uh flock only keeps the data for 30 days in the system now, clearly, if we're looking for a vehicle and we find the vehicle on our cameras, we can screenshot the plate in the car and save that internally. Um, but the information on the Flock system itself gets purged after 30 days. And that's that's a safeguard that Flock Safety puts into place there so that there's no uh, concerns about, you know, going back years to find data on somebody. Thanks again, Jeff. Yeah, absolutely. I appreciate it. And thanks uh, for reaching out to us. And if you have any other questions, don't hesitate to reach out. Jeff Caponera is the police chief in the village of Grafton, and he spoke with WUWM's Eddie Morales. And did you know you can listen to Lake Effect as a podcast? Search for Lake Effect wherever you get your podcasts to download and listen on demand. You can also follow WUWM on Instagram where you'll find videos and pictures from news stories and Lake Effect interviews. In about 10 minutes, we'll explore what's popping up in the garden this month and how to use it. But first, we'll learn about Milwaukee County's Birth to Three program and what it's giving to local parents. That's coming up on Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. Listening to Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM. I'm Joy Powers. Raising children comes with many challenges. For people in need of extra support with developmental care, 
The Milwaukee County Birth to Three program is here to help. The program serves infants and toddlers as an early intervention program for developmental delays and disabilities. The goal is to aid child development with the help of educators, therapists, and service coordinators. To learn more about the program, Lake Effect's Audrey Nowakowski speaks with Samantha Cortez, the Birth to Three program coordinator for Milwaukee County, and Crystal Vang, Milwaukee County's Birth to Three liaison. So every child is, of course, different, but can you explain what makes the period of birth to three so crucial? Yeah, so every child learns and grows at their own pace, right? But there are milestones that every child should meet. And so parents and caregivers, they sh- they know their child best. And it's best when, you know, we can interact with them positively to impact the child and their development. And so research also suggests that the brain's development is the most adaptable in the first three years of life. And so early intervention services can change a child's developmental path. So we can't emphasize strongly enough how important it is for early diagnoses and intervention so that we can help the family in any way with this process. Okay, so let's say you're someone with a child who notices the maybe potential for some developmental delays or are concerned in general and don't really know where to start. What are the next steps? If they have a concern, um, typically they can make a referral. We do receive about three to 4,000 referrals a year. And so, you know, the impact that the Birth to Three program has on Milwaukee County, it's large. And we have also great partnerships with, um, you know, local community hospitals and clinics and school districts, um, also with the Division of Milwaukee Child Protective Services, to name some of the few. So making a referral is the best way to do that. And by doing so, you can call the referral line. Do you know it, Samantha? 414-289-6799. So then to call the referral line would be the best way. And then behind that phone call, there's a professional that is there to receive the call so that they can answer the questions and concerns and direct them appropriately. Samantha, can you touch upon what evaluators look for when assessing a child and before kind of determining next steps and and working with the family? Yes. So uh, our model in Birth at Three is primary coach approach to teaming. And so that means that we really take the family's input. They know their child best. So we're really looking for that parent's knowledge on what is going on with their child. We look at the overall development of the whole child, and if there's a specific concern, then we look at that specific concern. So the family has an option of evaluators from speech therapists, occupational therapists, physical therapists that can look at that specific development um, with their specific tool and their expertise. There are a lot of factors that come into play when it comes to assessing and offering the correct services. And Milwaukee County is still in an unfortunate place where race plays a big factor in predicting health outcomes. And research indicates children of color are more likely to be misdiagnosed or diagnosed later in life. So how is the Birth to Three program working to address this and try to create an inclusive environment for children and their families to address them according to what works best for them? Yeah, so in the past two years, we've had the opportunity to receive um, grants that focus on different aspects. So one, focusing on that social and emotional development, so that mental health of the caregiver and that child. 
as well as our current grant is focusing on um, eliminating barriers. So having being more access, raising more awareness to families that don't know about early intervention or might not know about child development and what their child's um, milestones should be meeting. So that is our goal is trying to really eliminate those barriers, being more accessible to children um, and families of color, especially our Latinx and our Asian families. Um, our data really shows that we're not receiving those referrals as increasingly compared to white peers. I imagine this has a lot to do with outreach challenges. Can either one of you speak on that aspect of your work? Mm -hmm. So, you know, with the whole pandemic and the COVID-19 pandemic, we actually did our grant that we did for that social emotional development, our efforts, we had to change our efforts. We wanted to do more, you know, in-person outreach, going to the neighborhoods and communities. And with that pandemic, we had to switch gears. So we did, we did a lot of our outreach um, social media wise. Um, we launched our Facebook page and we did more community cafes. So having more of those opportunities for families to just click on a, a team Zoom link to get to know the Birth of Three program, wherever they're at, at any time, they can um, join us that way. So we trialed that out and it was really successful that we were able to get a lot of families interested in that in a virtual world and learning about the Birth of Three program. In addition to these outreach challenges, I imagine that sometimes it's hard for parents to overcome their own conflicted feelings about asking for help or not knowing what's next for their child and even the stigma associated with that. So what would you like to share with caretakers to encourage them to take advantage of services like Birth to Three? I would say parents know their child the best. And it's okay to ask for help. And we are not here to judge uh, families or to let you parents know this is what your child should be doing. But we work individualized with that child and that family um, and letting them know where they're at developmentally. Our program is voluntary, so it, we are not mandated to provide these services, but we are here to help. And um, any little questions, any little concern, wondering, is my child supposed to be doing this? We're here to help answer those questions. Parenting is hard and can be isolating, too. What kind of community or support network has stemmed from birth to three that you both have seen? I would say that we've had the opportunity to work with the parenting network in the past uh, two three years in providing specific parenting classes and trying to increase our family engagement and building a sense of community in birth to three. We had an event Friday, May 19th at the zoo for our birth to three families. And we had over about 400 families attend um, and just got to know and get to interact with other families who are facing the similar challenges. And it was really great and nice to see that. Crystal, could you talk about any other positive impact on families in Milwaukee County that the birth to three program has seen? Yeah, for sure. So then we um, also with the parenting network, we had uh, what was called the fast classes. And so that's an eight week series uh, once a week for eight weeks. And the, this is a time where families can come together and um, have a meal together and also spend uh, some quality time with their child. Um, also, they get to separate from their child and then be able to meet with the adults that are in the group and have some conversations with other parent partners. So with that, we're building the community that is much needed in this population, you know, with young children, because 
again, you know, every every child learns differently and every parent also parents a little bit different. So being able to come together to unify, you know, that community, that support for each other, um, just to know that they're not alone in this and that, you know, even though you're taking your own path, you're also walking alongside other people and peers that are going through the same things. So this program is birth to three. I'm wondering, do you guys also serve a connective role in continuing a family support network after three years old? In the birth to three program, we transition families to school services and other programs outside of birth to three. At the time that they turn three or right before they turn three, that is, you know, when we start the process for transition um, out of the program. And so we do work in partnership with other community providers, and we um, usually recommend an LEA, which is a local education agency referral to school services if they should need additional support after they turn three. Great to know. So before we uh, close out, let's remind people, what's the best way for someone to connect with Birth to Three to start? The best way that somebody can reach us is by calling um, the Milwaukee County Children's Program and intake and referral line at 414-289-6799. All right. Well, Samantha and Crystal, thank you both so much for sharing more about Birth to Three. Thank you. Thanks. Samantha Cortez is the Birth to Three program coordinator for Milwaukee County, and Crystal Vang is Milwaukee County's Birth to Three liaison. They spoke with Lake Effect's Audrey Nowakowski. Coming up, we'll look at what's popping in the garden as the season of the harvest continues. That's coming up next on Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. is Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM. I'm Joy Powers. The bounty of the season is on full display here in Milwaukee, where farmers markets are overflowing with fresh fruits and vegetables. For this month's Dig In, contributor Venus Williams shares what's popping up in the garden and what the harvest says about our relationship with the earth. Venus, as always, thank you so much for being here on Lake Effect. Thank you for having me as we begin to close out this summer season. It is such an interesting end to the summer. What I am always amazed by is you go to a farmer's market at the beginning of the year and you're like, oh, you know, there's a little bit of stuff. There's some greens, maybe. If you go this time of year and you're like, I didn't realize how much you could grow in Wisconsin. Um, And I, I think it does speak to this kind of larger conversation we're all having about self-sufficiency, especially as many of us live through some trying times, natural disasters, uh, and the many things that test us in our lives. As an urban farmer, what is your take on self-sufficiency? Well, I strongly believe that self-sufficiency is one of those human myths that we have created. And because of it, we have this unhealthy relationship um, with the earth and what we produce. Self-sufficiency, what people talk about as self-sufficiency for me is about creating a lifestyle that is greener and cleaner and more environmentally authentic. And in doing that, we honor and celebrate the abundance of the earth 
and recognize that there is an interconnectedness that we will always have. Um, we as humans will never be self-sufficient. We need the earth and the plants and one another to create um, the environment, the world, the lives that we lead. So for me, self-sufficiency is all about making better choices on behalf of everyone and everything so that everyone can live well and greener and cleaner and more environmentally authentic. This time of year, it, it really is amazing how much uh, we see coming from the earth, coming from the hands, sometimes our own hands. But yes, so many of the people around us who are working the land. Uh, this time of year, what are we seeing come up? I am really surprised at how bountiful our apple trees are right now at Alice's Garden Urban Farm. Orchards all over the place are doing so well. And orchards to me are one of those huge investments in what we consider um, to be on the path of self-sufficiency. So I don't believe we've ever had this many apples. I'm seeing apples in orchards show up at farmer's markets sooner than they have um, in the past. And orchards are just bountiful. I think we're going to see a lot of early picking this year, early pick your own. Um, I believe some of that has already started. So we're seeing berries and, you know, whether you know them as ground cherries or tomatillo pineapples, depending upon which culture you were raised in. And um, we're seeing a lot of that. There's just a lot of incredible um, produce coming to farmer's market. And just like you, I go, I shop, I even harvest from my own um, fields. And then I'm like, what are you going to do with all of this? Because I'm just excited. And then I bring way too much stuff home. And then it's time to begin preserving some of this for the winter months. I will say I was just at, I think it was the Bayview Farmer's Market, and I was surprised by how many ground cherries there were. I hadn't had them before. If you have not had them like me, I suggest that you try them. They are amazing. But I did think to myself as I was eating them, I went, oh, man, this would be an amazing jam. Yes, yes, yes. So again, if we're going to talk about what it means to honor and live off the earth and to celebrate its abundance, we have to talk about preserving food. And there are so many different ways to do that, whether you can food, you know, so the, you know, doing the whole process and getting them in mason jars and putting them on your shelves. Whether we are talking about freezing or dehydrating, which are two of my favorite ways to preserve food. I do a lot of bulk cooking. And so at the table, we're going to begin our series on bulk cooking and preserving and dehydration um, come mid-September. I love gathering people together. We cook all of this food at once, and then we each take it home and we're able to not just cherish the food itself, but the conversations and the relationships and the community that was built as we did this cooking and preserving together. What are some of the things that you can that people might be surprised by? For me, I don't do a lot of traditional canning. Some of the things that I love to can are, I like to pickle Egyptian walking onions. 
Um, Egyptian walking onions are this, this very small onion that Nina Ridgway, um, who used to own Barthel Fruit Farms, introduced me to. I brought one plant home 15 years ago, and that plant has probably produced another 2,000 plants. And so many people all over, all over the city of Milwaukee have gotten starter plants in those bulbs from Alice's Garden Urban Farm. So I pickle those, and they are just delicious. I'm also a bread and butter pickle fan. That's my favorite pickle or bread and butter pickle. So um, those are some of the things that I can. I love okra. So this year I am cultivating um, 10 different varieties of okra, and I'm looking forward to pickling those, although most of those are going to go in soups and stews. But mainly I am doing bulk cooking, cooking my food, my greens thoroughly, putting them in the freezer and marking them for all of the different holidays. And of course, I'm dehydrating herbs, 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 so that I can have teas and other goodness throughout the winter months. <laughs> that is what our house is looking like right now. We have just herbs and a variety of other things like juniper berries drying everywhere. <laughs> yes. Elderberries just came into bloom at Alice's Garden. And oh my gosh, I cannot wait to begin building a 2023 relationship with elderberry. It's just such a beautiful time to celebrate the harvest, but to also recognize that you know, I get to this point where I'll, I have to do this now. I have to do this now before the season ends. Um, so I'm looking forward to everything that comes with the abundance of autumn. As always, you have a book recommendation for us. Uh, what do you have in this time of bounty? One of the books that I just have begun journeying with is called Attainable Sustainability. And it's by Chris Bordeza, B O. R-D-E-S-S-A. And it's a beautiful book of looking at all the different ways that we can engage the harvest, whether through preserving, crafting, all types of DIY ideas, and of course, cooking and baking. So Attainable Sustainability by Chris Bordeza is my favorite right now. Something I think we are all striving for in one way or another. Yes, for sure. Well, Venus, as always, thank you so much for joining us here on Lake Effect. Thank you for having me. Venus Williams is the executive director of Alice's Garden and the Fondy Food Center. And she's our regular dig-in contributor. You can find our previous conversations with her at wuwm.com. And that wraps up today's show. Thank you so much for being here with us. I'm Joy Powers. If you missed any of today's conversations, or if you'd like to take Lake Effect on the go, download our podcast. Search for Lake Effect wherever you get your podcasts to listen to all of our shows on demand. Tomorrow on Lake Effect, we'll explore a new book with the Milwaukee Public Library for our Book of the Month series. Plus, we'll learn about some of the newest restaurants opened in the Milwaukee area and look at some that we've said goodbye to. That's all tomorrow at noon, right here on Lake Effect on listener-supported 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR.